0: You're listening to Season 7 of Bionic Planet, now brought to you by Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. Vera, standards for a sustainable future. Kyle Pope edits the Columbia Journalism Review, and in 2020, he wrote about the most consequential disaster in the history of mass media. Namely, the half-century-long failure of our global media outlets to convey the enormity of the climate challenge. Journalism has always been good at fast, he wrote. The home team won. An old woman was shot. A president was elected. The quicker a story moves, the more compressed the drama, the better we are at reporting it. Slow is harder. Stories that contain subtlety, that evolve, that don't have an ending, those aren't our strength. Racism, systemic poverty, the long-term effects of outdated policy, these are subjects that we've consistently failed to get our arms around. We chase the immediate, the ephemeral, and ignore the seismic, the fundamental. We also, I might add, chase certainty, even when we think we don't. We're fine with scoring percentages and batting averages, but we struggle with nonlinear systems where Two and two can add up to twenty, or to one. And we're not good at stochastic processes either. That's where random events compound over time. These are a bit too, well, ephemeral for hard-headed realists. We deal in facts, and we like our facts the way we like our narratives. Simple and straightforward, even if reality isn't. That's one of the reasons we completely blew it on climate and tragically it's why we're blowing it on coverage of solutions where uncertainties are more pronounced today on bionic planet will coverage of climate solutions suffer the same fate as coverage of climate science man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it and of course add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth we broke it we own it and nothing is as it was not the trees not the seas not the forests farms or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these but we can restore it make it better greener more resilient more sustainable but how technology, geoengineering, are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine that question through the prism of global media. Why, for example, did it take us so long to awaken to the enormity of a challenge that scientists had been screaming? dreaming about for decades, and are we doomed to repeat this failure when covering climate solutions? Today's show is the first of three episodes adapted from articles I wrote for Ecosystem Marketplace last year, but were published earlier this year. I've updated them to reflect some things that have changed and to clarify some points that missed the mark. These pieces are part journalism and part editorializing, and the views expressed are mine and mine alone, not those of my sponsor or anyone who supports Bionic Planet. Also, a quick apology for my voice. I ended up with a nasty cold followed by COVID-19 a few weeks ago. My throat is still a bit scratchy. Early last year, The Guardian published a story under the following headline, Research findings that are probably wrong cited far more than robust ones, study finds. The story focused on the work of two behavioral psychologists who'd examined reams of research and concluded that bright, shiny bunk is 100 times more likely to be cited than is bland, boring truth, a ratio that triples in social sciences. The editor who wrote the piece dutifully reminds us that the finding, quote, is itself not exempt from the need for scrutiny, but that historically, the more dramatic the results, the more likely they are to be wrong. Unfortunately, the piece came too late for the Guardian's environmental team, which had already published a dramatically wrong piece under this headline, Carbon Offsets Used by Major Airlines Based on Flawed System Warn Experts. The Guardian produced that story together with Greenpeace's Unearthed Unit and a nonprofit called Source Material, all of which claimed to have uncovered hidden flaws in the ways carbon markets support forests. Flaws that hundreds of scientists had failed to identify over 45 years of research, but that a handful of intrepid reporters uncovered in a matter of months. It's a compelling narrative, but like those dramatic findings above, it's also wrong. Not because the system is perfect, it isn't, but because the narrative assumes a perfect solution exists. It doesn't. The supposedly flawed system, on the other hand, sees imaginary perfection as the enemy of the good, and it provides a framework within which the best available solutions are green-lighted and their imperfections pushed into the light so they can be squeezed out in later iterations. It supports early action and promotes evolutionary improvement within a mosaic of solutions that the simplistic narrative above not only ignores, but undermines. Nature-based carbon markets have evolved to fill gaps in the broader response to the climate challenge, and those markets adapt as the gaps shift And new solutions emerge. The first generation of nature-based carbon markets, for example, have often served a first responder function to protect the world's most ecologically valuable and vulnerable forests. But as new approaches emerge, these markets are shifting to a broader approach that we'll see was envisioned from the start, but impossible to implement until recently. By ignoring this context, some reporters are generating simple but deceptive narratives that echo the sloppy coverage of climate science that got us into this mess in the first place. Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway documented that sloppy coverage more than a decade ago, in 2010's The Merchants of Doubt. They showed how a, quote, Loose knit group of high level scientists driven by the ideology of free market fundamentalism and aided by a too compliant media turned the process of scientific discovery against itself to undermine trust in climate science and muddle public discourse specifically as the scientific consensus on climate change coalesced throughout the 1980s and 1990s right-wing ideologues many funded by ExxonMobil and Coke industries plucked outlier voices from choirs of debate stripped them of their context and framed honest inquiry as proof of some Nefarious. In their narrative, bright, shiny charlatans became brave prophets of revealed truth, standing up to an incestuous cabal of eggheads and bureaucrats. Conservative minded reporters aided up and legitimate publications followed suit, drawing more and more outlets into the narrative until, quote, a wide spectrum of the media felt obligated to treat these issues as scientific controversies. The result was a decades-long delay on climate action. Something similar is happening in coverage of market-based natural climate solutions, or NCS, with decades-old ideological disputes being framed as newly unearthed findings and legitimate areas of debate being framed as evidence of something dark and nefarious. This time, it's not free market fundamentalists who are contaminating public discourse, but others who are equally convinced of their righteousness, including but not limited to ideologues from the left. Those who see the market economy as the root of all evil and carbon offsets as a tool for perpetuating that evil. In their view, markets got us into this mess and markets can never get us out. One must question the motive for this ongoing reliance on market-based mechanisms, the very system that has led humanity to what is now a point of systems collapse, wrote Greenpeace last year. The environment and the cultures living in harmony with it should be the basis for human development and societies, not an item of the market economy, declared Brazilian NGO Simi. I'm no free market fundamentalist, and I'm even sympathetic to some of these views. But no one is allowed to support their arguments with findings that have been cherry-picked, decontextualized, and distorted. If The Guardian, Greenpeace, source material stories reveal anything, it's that the climate challenge isn't a puzzle book with an answer key in the back. It's a wicked problem that makes COVID-19 look like grammar school arithmetic. As in medical treatments, climate solutions are based on probabilities instead of certainties. They are, by necessity, implemented with incomplete information, and they often work in tandem with other treatments. What's more, their efficacy is measured against viable alternatives and not against pet theories, miracle cures, or imagined states of perfection. But these are the criteria against which the above outlets evaluate market-based NCS when they encourage us to jettison imperfect solutions that improve over time while endorsing the equivalent of magic bullets and mythical elixirs. Ideologues aren't the only ones putting narrative over substance. In the past year, ProPublica and the MIT Technology Review have produced similar content, as have Bloomberg, National Public Radio, and a handful of others. None of them are making stuff up, but they all present an incomplete and dangerously misleading narrative at a time when the public needs context. My goal with this series is to provide that context and not, as it may first appear, to convince you that carbon markets are perfect. They're not, as I stated above, but nothing is. Instead, I hope to put these markets into perspective by showing how they evolve to their current state, how they're continuing to evolve, and how that evolution addresses uncertainty. I won't go into deep detail on specific methodologies, but I will provide links to pieces that I and others have written, which you can find in the original article or in today's show notes. I'll also try to offer some insight into how market solutions fit into the Jenga tower of interlocking climate solutions and why the sum is greater than the parts. I'm offering a broad sweep, and I apologize for not offering point-by-point rebuttals to specific articles. Those do exist, and I don't want to rehash them, but I will link to them as well. If I do my job right, you'll soon have the context you need to understand those rebuttals and to distinguish the sensationalist coverage that I'm critiquing from the workhorse coverage that comprises the bulk of what's out there. All systems are imperfect, and the system of market-based NCS is no different, but it's done pretty well considering it had to evolve with little in the way of resources or support from the larger world until very recently. Now that the world has awakened to the enormity of the climate challenge, these markets can help accelerate our efforts to meet that challenge, but only if a critical mass of people understand how they work and what their limited role is. In this installment, I'll offer my take on how media can run amok in covering complex issues like climate change with or without ideological bias. And in part two, I'll offer a brief history of natural climate solutions. In part three, I'll introduce a framework for identifying science denial and see how this coverage fits into it. I cover a lot of territory here. And while I've checked a few things with friends, there's been no formal review. This series isn't the final word on anything, but rather the opening words to what I hope is a deeper exploration on your part. It's also, again, to reiterate, opinion, not reportage, although the opinions come from decades of reporting. Before diving in, however, let me offer a brief look at what I see as the fundamental misunderstanding that fuels all muddled coverage of carbon markets. Most of the people who get carbon markets wrong start out by conflating two fundamentally different questions. The first is, will companies use carbon markets to avoid the deep restructuring needed to meet the climate challenge? The second is, do carbon markets work? There's a corollary question, which I don't have space for here, and that relates to whether we should emphasize reductions or removals. I address that false dichotomy in episode 69 of Bionic Planet. So, to the first question, will companies use carbon markets to avoid the deep restructuring needed to meet the climate challenge? My answer, some companies may think they can buy their way out of reducing emissions, but they'll soon be disabused of that delusion. In part because the price of quality offsets has already risen substantially and will continue to do so, but also because emerging protocols for what does and doesn't constitute carbon neutrality emphasize internal reductions as well. Even if the size of the voluntary carbon markets increases 15-fold, as some argue it must, there won't be enough offsets to decarbonize the entire global economy. These markets exist to accelerate decarbonization, not to replace it. And for details on that, I'll link to an article called Debunked 8 Myths About Carbon Offsetting in the show notes. To the second question, do carbon markets work? Yes, carbon markets work, but they don't always work the way people think they do, and their impact can be subjective. This especially applies to projects that reduce emissions by financing natural climate solutions, which I keep referring to here as NCS. NCS is an umbrella term for a broad array of interventions that slow climate change by improving the way we manage forests, farms, and oceans. These involve science-based methodologies that incorporate varying degrees of certainty and uncertainty into their accounting. This ensures environmental integrity, but it also makes the methodologies hard to communicate, let alone develop, and easy to distort. In my view, most of the people trying to undermine trust in market-based NCS are doing so because they don't trust the answer to the first question. Again, that first question was, will companies use carbon markets to avoid the deep restructuring needed to meet the climate challenge? They don't trust the companies to use them right, so they start to claim that the projects aren't delivering. And we touched on that in the last episode. One school of thought says we should use markets to punish oil companies instead of financing cost-effective mitigation. And I hear that. There is an argument for creating a high carbon price to drive change, which I covered in my very first episode of Bionic Planet and will explore in part two of this series. I've also argued that we should hold purveyors of science denial accountable for their lies. But that's a different issue. Many of those criticizing market-based NCS argue that fossil fuel emissions should only be offset through industrial carbon capture and storage, or CCS, which pulls carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. CCS includes machines that have meters on them, which theoretically makes for a simpler accounting than you get in natural climate solutions. I see the argument, and it's a legitimate debate, one where reasonable people can disagree. What we all agree on, however, is that it's not an either-or situation. We need it all. I see the mechanisms that I'm exploring in this series as dominoes that we've been lining up for 45 years, waiting for the world to finally awaken to the enormity of the challenge. With that awakening, we can tip those dominoes to trigger a global restoration of nature, and we can do it fast, but only, again, if a critical mass of people see how this all fits together. Bottom line, if people want to argue that certain industries should only, only be allowed to use certain types of offsets that's their prerogative but if they lose that argument they can't go trying to discredit market-based ncs with cherry-picked findings and outlier opinions that run contrary to a preponderance of the evidence before we get into the second block of today's show a word from this season's official sponsor or from me on behalf of this season's official sponsor, Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. I first wrote about Vera back in the mid-2000s, before the organization even existed. The Kyoto Protocol was just about to kick in and people were looking for ways to extend its Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM, to voluntary buyers. The CDM was the part of the protocol that made it possible for companies in rich countries to partly meet their commitments by financing reductions in poor countries. Put another way, the CDM was a compliance carbon market because companies used it to comply with the law. But in 2005, the Gold Standard Foundation, which oversaw the CDM gold standard, started looking for ways to let companies use the CDM for voluntary purposes. At the same time, two organizations that you've probably never heard of, Climate Wedge and Chain Capital, proposed the creation of something called a Voluntary Carbon Standard to do the same and maybe more. I remember one raucous side event at a climate conference in Cologne, Germany. People were up on chairs, screaming, crying almost, about how important it was to get this right and to go beyond just using CDM credits for voluntary offsetting and creating Made a whole new standard, a vehicle through which people working to make a difference on the ground, in the field, on the front lines of climate change could introduce new approaches that could be tried and tested crowdsourced, so to speak, so that smallholders and indigenous people could use these markets to save their forests. A consensus emerged that a new voluntary carbon standard had to be created in a transparent and open-sourced way, with broad expert input and a way for the general public and stakeholders to get involved as well, and it needed global coordination. To their credit, Climate Wedge and Chain Capital turned the whole thing over to a global consortium that included the Climate Group and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, among others. They developed it into a forum through which environmentalists, indigenous communities, green businesses, and anyone else who sees an unfunded climate solution can propose ways of funding that solution through carbon finance under this new direction the voluntary carbon standard developed a structured methodological approach to welcoming new proposals putting them through the ringer of expert review where they'd be kicked into shape before then going out for public consultation after which they'd be kicked around some more until they'd either be rejected or become approved methodologies Talk about a $20 word for developing specific types of carbon credits to finance specific climate solutions. The VCS also created a vehicle through which people could then use those methodologies to generate credits by saving endangered forests, reviving degraded forests, or anything else that could be shown to work, and doing so in ways that can be validated and verified by independent third-party auditors to generate a credit that can be tracked, traced, and retired. I watched the voluntary carbon standard take shape, and saw how its methodologies earned the respect of governments which started recognizing it for their compliance programs prompting a change in name to the verified carbon standard which eventually started generating new standards for the sustainable development goals and other non-carbon benefits prompting another change in name to vera with the vcs becoming one of many standards that vera administers I became a huge fan of Vera over the years, as I watched it grow from the germ of an idea kicking around a side event in Cologne to being the most widely followed environmental standard in the world, which is why I've taken them on as my primary sponsor for season seven of Bionic Planet. The arrangement goes beyond just a sponsorship. I'll also be helping Vera generate educational material and liaise with reporters. This is a big change for me because when I launched the show in 2016, I wanted to avoid sponsorship money from groups that I'd be covering. Unfortunately, I soon found that the only groups who really understood the subject matter were those I'd be covering. So I kind of shot myself in the foot in those early days. Vera, however, isn't just any group. It's an open forum within which competing ideas converge, diverge, clash, and merge. That's what I'm trying to do on the show. Bionic Planet remains an independent production, and Vera is just one of many sponsors I've got for this year. Bionic Planet remains an independent production, and I still need your help and additional sponsorship to cover production costs. If you support me through Patreon, I hope you continue to do so. If you don't support me, but you like this show and you want more and better episodes, consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Bionic Planet there all one word, no dots or dashes. We now pick up with a look at why we need natural climate solutions. Natural climate solutions address some of the most vexing components of the climate challenge. Deforestation, for example, generates 13% of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with human activities. And it's the epitome of a wicked problem with multiple underlying drivers and no perfect solution. NCS, as we'll see, can get us roughly a third of the way to meeting the Paris Agreement's 1.5 degree target, but they were garnering just 1% of climate-related media coverage until 2018. This changed after a seminal paper called, appropriately enough, Natural Climate Solutions put NCS on the map. Media now cover NCS, but it's sometimes a blend of exuberant, unexamined support for nature and condescending dismissal of the financing mechanisms that enable that support. In 2019, for example, The Guardian was among several papers gushing over the, quote, mind-blowing potential of tree planting to slow climate change. That's a problem, not because tree planting can't help meet the climate challenge. It can and it must. The problem is that all the stories overstated the solution by making claims that are impossible if you do the math, while presenting 50-year-old solutions as new and revolutionary ideas. This distracted from a half-century of methodological progress. The negative fallout from these irrationally exuberant stories was foreshadowed in 2019 when Ecosystem Marketplace published that year's State of Voluntary Carbon Markets report. In that report, experts listed naively positive coverage as one of the more dangerous developments of the preceding year. Why? Because, they feared, naive coverage would promote naive demand, and this would encourage fly-by-night tree planting schemes and embolden carbon cowboys. It's a euphemism for shady operators who claim to offer carbon credits but ignore recognized standards and eschew third-party oversight. As feared, dubious tree planting projects did proliferate, but so, thankfully, did critical coverage of these operations. Then The Guardian teamed up with Greenpeace to, quote, investigate NCS programs operating under methodologies that had evolved over decades of peer review and public consultation, and that's where it gets weird. Within NCS, they focused on a cluster of mechanisms and interventions called Red Plus. REDD+, as regular listeners know, stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, plus fostering conservation, sustainable management of forests, and enhancement of forest carbon stocks in developing countries. The term itself is enough to put people to sleep, but it describes an effective yet complex and interdependent array of financing mechanisms that are being used to counter deforestation, albeit not yet at the scale needed and not yet in a way that's fully integrated into government policies. Unlike simple tree planting schemes, which offer nothing in the way of accountability, verified carbon projects follow detailed methodologies that were developed through this public process of peer review and response each project, as a result, has its own prepared documentation that describes the design of the carbon credit, known by various names, project design documents, project description templates, and other terms that lay out the rationale for the project's climate benefits, as well as the probabilities of the project succeeding or failing and the risk management strategies that will be undertaken based on those probabilities. This transparency is their greatest strength, but it also makes them vulnerable to cherry-picking and distortion. Uncertainties are inevitable in carbon finance, as they are in weather forecasting and climate modeling. But while individual projections are uncertain, hundreds will average out to something predictable. Forest carbon project developers use uncertainty levels to adjust the number of credits coming from their projects and buffer pools to provide insurance against reversals from events like forest fires or incursions. Independent third-party project validators check these uncertainty levels, and the methodologies underpinning these projects are updated as the science improves. What matters to the system is whether the risk adjustments, insurance pools, and buffers prescribed in the rules and methodologies make up for uncertainty. Carbon standards are in the midst of major updates right now, with new methodologies out for public consultation and new criteria for verifiers and validators, as well as new training regimes. These updates began years ago and are not as the Guardian has implied, a response to their reporting. They're part of the evolutionary process. As are new treatments for COVID-19 and other diseases. Turning the process of improvement upon itself can do a lot of damage. Now, every journalist I know agrees that we blew it on climate change, And for reasons that Columbia Journalism Review editor Kyle Pope elucidated in 2020, as I mentioned in the opening of today's show. If you think things were better in the golden days of journalism, check out what New York Sun editor John Bogart said more than a century ago. When a dog bites a man, that is not news, because it happens so often, he said. But if a man bites a dog, that is news. This is less a media failure than a bug in the human psyche. We're drawn to novelty and clear story arcs because they're how we learn and assimilate information. The problems come when novelty distracts us from boring reality or when the clear arc is a false narrative. In academia, they talk of publication bias, which means studies that confirm the consensus rarely get published. Scottish psychologist Stuart Ritchie recently bemoaned this phenomenon. Scientists are dependent on grants to support their research and work in an atmosphere that favors showy and ostentatious findings over workhorse studies that only add small pieces to our knowledge, he wrote. Marta Sara Garcia and Urinisi, who wrote the study I opened with, pointed out that such ostentation contaminates public discourse because, quote, "...these wrong studies are also more likely to receive media coverage and become famous." And once they're famous, they're dangerous, especially when they get hardwired into our political brains. Once that happens, they become zombie ideas, which Paul Krugman defines as, quote, ideas that should have been killed by contrary evidence, but instead keep shambling along, eating people's brains. Nobel laureate Robert Schiller likened the spread of bad ideas to pandemics that erupt when viruses move from a population with high immunity, such as people who are expert in the field being addressed, to one with low immunity, Us (laughs) Via a vector, media, that converts them into something easily absorbed into the prevailing narrative, spawning what he called a contagion of oversimplified and easily transmitted variants. Former science reporter Ryan Mandelbaum wrote how this phenomenon plays out in bad science reporting. It's really not that hard to write a science news story, I promise, he wrote. Some new scientific results come out, you talk to a scientist on the phone and ask them what they did. Then you ask a few other people who know about the research if the results made sense. It's a lot like, well, any other reporting. But there's just something about science news that makes people really, really bad at covering it. Reporters blow single papers out of proportion, publish their own assumptions that the research doesn't actually support, or plop a super speculative headline on top of preliminary results. Then there's the hype cycle, where writers might opt to cover overblown, one-sided university press releases instead of the actual science. Box science reporter Brian Resnick wrote about the hype cycle in 2019, when he showed how an academic study on the behavior of lonely investors spawned a flurry of news stories on the perils of urban living. This viral variant emerged as the research passed from a population with high immunity, the academic world, to a vulnerable population, reporters, via a vector, the university's press department, that had inadvertently caused a mutation in the message. Many journalists just follow the lead of press releases, wrote Resnick. If we can't evaluate the claims of press releases, how can we evaluate the merits of studies which aren't immune to shoddy methods and overhyped findings themselves. As he was publishing his piece, a new hype cycle was emerging, the one in Natural Climate Solutions. As I mentioned earlier, the term natural climate solutions entered the vernacular in a 2017 paper that examined a range of interventions from planting trees to improving fertilizer management to revitalizing soil that can be leveraged to meet the climate challenge. The hype cycle, however, began later when a far less rigorous paper overstated both the potential and the revolutionary nature of NCS. It provided, in other words, exactly the kind of oversimplified variant that goes viral. This is the paper The Guardian gushed over above, and they were far from alone. To be fair, prominent climate leaders did reference the paper to amplify understanding of NCS, so a reporter on deadline can be forgiven for running with it. But a simple Google search would have led them to the full story. The fact is afforestation reforestation, or tree planting, was already a mature mitigation approach. And it was underpinned by carbon market methodologies, which, as we'll see in the next instalment, had evolved through a long and transparent process of stakeholder review. RED+ was also mature then, and it includes afforestation, reforestation. When the hype cycle turned to these mature approaches, the transparency that's core to their constant improvement became a patch of raw cherries to be picked and offered context-free to a newly woke public hungry for fully baked pies. Partly as a result, the mood shifted from blind infatuation to abject scorn with little effort to first understand, let alone explain the dynamics. The great tragedy in all of this is that we need informed skepticism from diverse stakeholders. That's what drives the whole process forward. Both Red Plus and the larger suite of natural climate solutions have evolved substantially over the past 30 years. And they've evolved explicitly because healthy critiques drive evolutionary improvement. But the pieces I'm addressing don't offer healthy critique. They offer sensationalist headlines highlighting issues that either no longer exist, never existed, or are known limitations in workhorse mechanisms that are functioning in their own little way, but being whipped and beaten for not managing to pull the entire load on their own. Infuriatingly, many of those doing the whipping and beating have also done the most prancing and the least pulling. Now, in the next installment, I'll offer a brief history of natural climate solutions before segueing into a more focus summary of the parallels between bad science reporting and outright science denial before wrapping up a quick reminder if you think i'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain english and putting them into context for you and you want to hear more and better episodes then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionic planet bionic planet with no dots or dashes there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap the one complaint i get is that i don't generate enough episodes and you can help me deliver more by becoming a patron the address again patreon.com Forward slash bionic planet. That wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.